Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. I've received some excellent feedback and ideas for stories from those of you who filled out the survey. So thanks for doing that. Got Science stickers are in the mail, and I've decided to keep the survey up a bit longer. You can find it at gotsciencepodcast.org. There's been a lot of buzz in the news about the Green New Deal. The non-binding resolution is scheduled for a vote today in the Senate by opponents who aren't really interested in acting on climate change. Today we'll find out what the deal is with the Green New Deal. And Shreya Dravasala is back with another egregious example of the Trump administration sidelining science. Stick around for that. With climate scientists in agreement that we humans have only about 10 years to stop carbon emissions before it's too late to prevent some of the worst damages from climate change, it's clear that governing bodies around the world, especially my own in the U.S., need to take bold and far-reaching action. I mean, they needed to do that like 30 or 40 years ago, but today would be nice too. Climate change won't stop itself, and if we don't address it, we'll all suffer. But the people who have contributed the least to climate change are some of the people who will suffer the most. And that's just not fair. We have the technology to start making huge positive changes right now. But we don't have enough members of Congress on board to say nothing of our executive branch to carry out those changes. And their failure to move or even think beyond the status quo won't give us what's needed to protect our children, our families, our communities, indeed our future from the most harmful impacts of climate change. What's needed is an ambitious suite of ideas, policies, and investments. Something like FDR's New Deal, but for climate change. If you're in the U.S., you've probably heard something about a Green New Deal, a conceptual proposal from some members of Congress that addresses climate change and aims to minimize the damages of climate change fairly and equitably. It's an ambitious resolution in a time that calls for ambitious action. And yet opponents of climate action want to turn this important conversation starter into a political theater in hopes of creating division and shutting it all down. They would do all of us a favor if they listened to today's podcast with my guest. Rachel Cletus is a senior economist with our climate and energy program, and she stopped by the studio to give her scientifically grounded take on the Green New Deal. We talked about what the Green New Deal is and what it isn't, how it can address issues of racial inequities and environmental justice, and how we both believe there's hope for our future. Rachel, thanks for coming over to join me today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Colleen. So we're going to talk about the Green New Deal today. But before we we dive into that, let's refresh our ninth grade history. Can you tell us what the original New Deal was and the connection to the Green New Deal? Sure. So this takes us back to the time of the Great Depression when uh, President Roosevelt was elected. And we were in a tough moment as a country and the whole world, actually. Many people were out of jobs. It was hard to put food on the table. And the president very quickly came up with a range of government programs that would help put people back to work, would also help create a social safety net that would allow people who were unemployed to at least have some sustenance to keep going. 
But one very important thing to recognize is that the original New Deal was actually a, a series of programs that happened over some phases. It wasn't just fully baked from the beginning, one fine day, all these wonderful things. And we've continued to refine them over time. In their original configuration, they left some people behind. They didn't address some of the inequities uh, the racial discrimination that was part of our nation's history at the time. And so we can do better going forward. And so that history is very useful to anchor us and as an opportunity to use it to go further. So tell me about the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal is an idea that's been around for over a decade now uh, in many different incarnations. And depending on who you ask, it, it has different characteristics, but some common themes are that people recognize to solve big challenges like climate change, economic disparities, unemployment, we need big ideas. You need big commitment from a policy perspective, but you need partnerships between the government and the private sector. And at its heart, the Green New Deal is about a major investment in our economy that will help solve multiple problems. It will help transition us to a low-carbon, more climate-resilient economy but it'll also address some of the equity issues we have around employment, who has access to jobs, whose well-being are we talking about. So that's the, the kernel of the idea of the Green New Deal. Of course, to build it out requires a lot of thought about all the different policies that it'll require. And that's the moment we're in right now, trying to build out what that policy platform might look like. So it seems like the Green New Deal, there's a lot of energy from from the younger generation. Yeah, so in its current generation, what's really striking and wonderful and exciting about the Green New Deal is the energy uh, from youth that's behind it, the momentum. And we've really seen it explode just after the elections last November, where there was simultaneously a change in the House here in the United States, but also globally a youth movement that was taking fire where young people around the world were asking leaders to step up and take action to address climate change because their futures are at stake. And what we're seeing is a confluence of all of these forces coming together to really try to change not just the policies, but the politics of what's possible now, and to raise the level of ambition because of the urgency around climate change and some of these other socioeconomic challenges. In the coming months, the Green New Deal will become more developed, will get some flesh on the bones. Can you tell me about the, the resolution that Representatives Ocasio-Cortez and Markey introduced and what's involved in the very broad framework? So what the resolution does is straight off the bat, right from the beginning, frames it within the science. The IPCC 1.5C report, the National Climate Assessment, both of which were released last year, pointing out why we're doing this. Here is the reason. It's climate change and the fact that we're running out of time to address this issue. But some very other important pieces are that the resolution also acknowledges early on the socioeconomic context in which we're trying to make these changes, recognizing the history of racial discrimination, uh, the fact that we have uh, inequities, and we need to be addressing this. Some communities have borne a disproportionate burden of the impacts of pollution as we make a transition to a clean energy economy, we've got to address the fact that there are currently folks who draw their livelihood from the fossil fuel industry, folks, for example, like coal miners. And we've got to be thinking about a just transition for folks like that so that they're not left behind. 
The other really important thing the resolution does is acknowledge the U.S.'s role on the global stage in terms of taking leadership on dealing with this challenge, because we are a nation that has, uh, relatively speaking, more resources. We also have more responsibility for the problem because of our contribution to emissions. All of this is acknowledged in the resolution. Fundamentally, though, the resolution is not yet a set of policies. It's creating a space to have that dialogue and invite a whole range of diverse stakeholders in to help flesh out what those policies will look like. And we at UCS are excited and want to help contribute to developing those policies because in many cases, there's a great deal of overlap uh, with issues we've already been working on like deploying more renewable energy resources. Right, a lot of the work that is happening in the States, we would be building on that. Absolutely. UCS, you know, has done a lot of work both at the federal and at the state level to promote renewable energy resources, clean vehicles, help reduce pollution from fossil fuels. We are also thinking a lot about what the next generation of technologies might look like, things like battery storage, electric vehicles. And within the Green New Deal's ambit, you see the opportunity for an aggressive, accelerated clean energy momentum to help get us to net zero emissions by mid-century or before, as the IPCC report calls for. So if you were on the team starting to dig into this and lay things out, what are the top priorities that you think need to be in a Green New Deal? So I think the most important thing about a Green New Deal is actually the process. It's about who's at the table when we're making these decisions. And it's really important that we not leave communities that are being directly impacted by climate change or who are directly and disproportionately affected by pollution from being at the table. And I think we at UCS are excited to be part of that type of a coalition that's diverse, that's broad, that's thinking about this problem from many different angles, and us contributing our expertise on specific issues as well. So the key elements from my perspective are that we are not just trying to solve climate change, but solve it in an equitable way. We're trying to, of course, accelerate our momentum towards zero carbon economy. But as we do that, we're creating opportunities and we want everyone to benefit from those opportunities. We want to design policies that ensure from the get-go that the benefits flow in an equitable way. So one thing that's really been in the zeitgeist lately is an infrastructure bill. There's been a lot of bipartisan interest in uh, investing in America's aging infrastructure and building infrastructure for the, the next century and beyond. As we do that, there's a real opportunity to be thinking about infrastructure that's low carbon, that's climate resilient, that's being built in neighborhoods that have not had those kinds of investments before. When you build great mass transit options that are low carbon, for example, it can create employment opportunities, it can help people get to work more easily, it can help people's pocketbooks, frankly, it can reduce the costs of things like transportation. And so we have an opportunity here as we talk about infrastructure to be really thinking about it in, in the frame of the Green New Deal which at its heart is about a massive investment program in a new type of infrastructure that will have broad social and economic benefits. Another way to think about this is we know that there are many places that are vulnerable to the impacts of climate change right now, and some smaller communities just don't have the wherewithal on their own to be making the kinds of investments that would make them more resilient to these climate impacts like sea level rise. 
So as we have a huge investment from the federal government to help build resilience, we can make sure that these communities aren't left behind, that they also have a path forward in a climate-altered future. What would you want to see in a Green New Deal from a science perspective? I think the most important thing is that we recognize where we are in terms of the climate challenge, which is that our window to limit warming to 1.5 C or 2 C is rapidly closing. We have just over a decade left to take some really serious actions to make sure that happens. And the Green New Deal is acknowledging not just the scale of the challenge, but also the urgency in some of these time frames. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. Now let's get back to our interview. So what are some of the concrete energy transition elements in the resolution? What the resolution recognizes is that we have to get to a net zero economy as soon as possible. And to do that, we have to make a real transformation in our power sector by moving to low carbon generation resources. And it's not just about generation. We have to build out the kind of transmission, uh, the storage, the other pieces of the electric system that will help us transition to this low carbon power system. We have to, at the same time, electrify as many end uses as possible, including transportation and industrial uses of energy, so that they too are coming from low carbon sources. We have to build the infrastructure to do that. We have to also make sure that we are preserving the ability of our forests and lands to absorb carbon and store it and maybe enhance the quality of our soils so that it is storing more carbon and more productive in agricultural uses. So really taking a broad view of the different ways across the economy that we can reduce emissions. And what's critical, though, is that the resolution recognizes this at a high level, but the policies to help make this happen obviously have to be fleshed out We can see glimmers of it already in what states are doing. So, for example, many states have renewable electricity standards that are geared towards making sure that more renewables come online. And we've seen a number of states in the last year take very promising action towards raising their renewable electricity standards. States like California and Massachusetts and New Jersey, Nevada. We also have a real opportunity to be thinking about how to ramp up specific technologies like solar rooftop or microgrids, battery storage. And so the resolution is at a high level, and now we have an opportunity to sort of use the experiences we've had at the state and federal level to think about how do you accelerate that clean energy transition. And that means getting more ambitious, both at the state and federal level in terms of the existing policies and implementing new bold policies. So as states are doing a lot of this work individually, something like infrastructure, can that be done on a state-by-state sort of patchwork quilt level? Or does that need sort of a broader vision to make that happen? Well, I think there's a pretty bipartisan understanding out there right now that the U.S. has for a long time neglected investing in its infrastructure. And as a result, 
we have a lot of our roads and bridges and rail and other types of infrastructure in a state of disrepair, frankly. So now, as we're thinking about the next tranche of infrastructure investments, let's be thinking about not just building back to business as usual, but really investing in the kind of infrastructure that's going to take us forward in this low-carbon, climate-resilient fashion. That means building our roads and bridges and highways and in ways that are climate resilient, but also making sure that we're not doubling down on the kind of infrastructure that comes with emissions attached to it, pipelines and other fossil fuel dependent types of infrastructure that would just have us continuing to increase our emissions. So can we reorient some of that infrastructure investments towards the kind of infrastructure that would bring online greater and greater amounts of renewables? The opportunities are huge and, you know, we really need to take advantage of those. So, Tony, you mentioned a minute ago microgrids. Many of our listeners may not know what microgrids are. Um, I think they probably know they're tiny grids. But um, <laughs> tell me what the um, what the point of the microgrid is. Well, so as we transition our electricity sector towards being a low-carbon electricity sector, we need to be thinking about the generation resources, of course. We want more wind, solar, geothermal, but we also need to be connecting those two population centers. So we need great transmission that will, for example, bring wind from areas, say, in the Midwest that may not be very populated to population centers in other places. So high voltage lines, long distance transmission lines that will bring that energy to places where people are. And then one component of this is also microgrids, where we can build a grid that's essentially a twofer. You have a smaller scale connection within a particular geographic area where you're connecting a renewable resource, usually with battery storage connected to it that can serve a small population center. And that during a time of an extreme weather event, such as a storm, if major transmission lines go down, this area could still continue to have energy because it is able to decouple from the broader grid. Microgrids are being used, deployed in many contexts right now. The military is thinking a lot about it because it's often working in conditions where access to reliable power is sort of mission critical. It's also something that small island nations are thinking a lot about. I heard, I thought Puerto Rico was thinking or planning to do some microgrids. Absolutely, because as we've seen around the nation, when we have these extreme hurricanes and storms, sometimes the power can go down for days on end, and that has real implications, not just for businesses, but people's lives, frankly, you know, hospitals losing power and that type of thing. And relying on technologies like diesel generators is frankly just not going to be enough for where we want to go from a climate perspective. So microgrids are a chance to generate that power in a resilient fashion in the face of these extreme events, but do it in a clean way. And as battery storage improves dramatically, as this technology takes off, really the sky's the limit. So we have 10 years How quickly can a resolution get through the system and have something that we can really work with and get going ASAP? So what's clear is that in the U.S., at least politically, we are in many ways gearing up for what is the next administration going to look like? Because clearly this administration has lied about the science, tried to roll back climate policies, is absolutely abdicating leadership completely on this issue. So over the next year and a half or so, there will be more details that come out, policy details around the Green New Deal. And really, it is about changing 
the politics of what's possible because we have been caught in this terrible cycle of partisan polarization around this issue of climate change, which has left the U.S. almost isolated on the world stage in terms of acknowledging and taking action on this important issue. So we and many, many others who care about climate change are looking to absolutely break through this this cycle and come out on the other side with really bold, ambitious policy ideas, and not just policy ideas that are centered in Washington, D.C. and those politics, but really have grassroots support around the country. And I think once you start to get a broad-based support for something like this, that's when you start to see really the tipping point of change that we've been waiting for from a climate action perspective. So I'm very hopeful that the Green New Deal and and ideas like it, the youth-led energy behind it, is really going to push us into this tipping point where we'll be unstoppable. So as we're recording this podcast, it's it's a few weeks before we air, and we already know a lot of activities that are that are coming up. For example, the Sunrise Movement will be traveling around the country to talk about the Green New Deal. So how do you see things playing out in the coming months leading up to the election? So yes, the Sunrise Movement is in the process of gearing up around the country, we hear, and and that's really exciting. But there are many things happening. As you mentioned, we are seeing in Congress interest in renewable electricity standard bills, tax credits for renewable energy, infrastructure bills. And then we have our yearly appropriations process where Congress decides how it's going to spend money. And there's some real opportunities there to invest in things like ARPA-E, which is a Department of Energy program that helps advance really cutting-edge technologies. There are opportunities to invest in climate resilience through the congressional appropriations process. So we shouldn't be waiting for one singular moment where one magic policy solves all our problems. We absolutely have to take every bite of the apple that we get. We're not waiting just for the next administration. We're going to use the next year and a half to push on as many fronts as possible. That's great to hear. I was a little worried (laughs) (laughs) as we were talking that we have this resolution on the table and you know, what's going to happen? Will it get stalled? And if we're just waiting for that uh, with 10 years to go, that just doesn't seem like the best idea. But I'm glad to hear we have many opportunities yes, coming up. Yes, and I think we don't have any time to waste and we've got to take every opportunity we can get and, and continue the momentum, essentially let it build, let that build on itself. You know, around the country, we've seen some terrible extreme events in the last couple of years So people know that it's here and now. It's not just about some distant future. And what we have to do is connect the solutions to the things people care about. We can solve climate change and clean up our air at the same time. We can solve climate change and create jobs at the same time. That's the real opportunity here. Great. Well, Rachel, thanks so much for um, coming over to, to chat with me. Thank you so much, Colleen. It was great to talk to you. I'm leaving with a sense of hope, which is great. Absolutely. This is about our kids' futures. And, you know, they're showing up to say uh, with loud voices, they want us to do better. It's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest frustrating news from an administration that assumes what you don't know won't hurt you, even when it really could. Our Shreya Dervasala has the story. As we were recording today's show, 
A fire at a petrochemical facility in the Houston area was slowly burning itself out. After toxic fumes from the burning chemicals had forced local officials to issue shelter-in-place warnings. As they watched plumes of smoke in the sky, surely more than a few Houstonians were reminded of the chemical spills, explosions, fires, and floods of toxic sludge that occurred during Hurricane Harvey in 2017. Millions of people live in and near Houston, and situated right in their neighborhoods are thousands of refineries, industrial facilities, and chemical manufacturing plants, which in some cases abut shipping channels and rivers. When Harvey dumped out more than 60 inches of rain on Houston over a week, many of these facilities flooded, sweeping out stores of toxic chemicals and sending them into the streets and bodies of water. An Arkema chemical plant in Greater Houston exploded. Benzene and other noxious chemicals leaked into the air in various hotspots. And first responders and residents reported nausea, dizziness, and other reactions from breathing in the air. If you were a public official in Houston, responsible for monitoring public health and safety in the region, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that after a storm like that, with various environmental disasters left and right, you would probably want to know what people were breathing in and whether it was safe to be outside. You would want to use rigorous science to test the air quality and inform people about their choices. If that rings true for you, pat yourself on the back because you're already doing a better job than two of the dudes who were actually responsible for public health in Houston during and after Hurricane Harvey. The Los Angeles Times just uncovered and published evidence that after Hurricane Harvey hit, NASA offered to fly a super-specialized plane over Houston to gather air samples. Of course, NASA has the best gear, so this particular plane happens to have some of the best air quality testing devices in the world on board. The two dudes I mentioned are David Gray, the EPA's Deputy Regional Administrator in Houston, and Michael Honeycutt, toxicologist with the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, and now the chair of the EPA Science Advisory Board. When NASA reached out to the both of them and offered to send their pilots and scientists to fly over Houston to measure just how bad the damage was and analyze which chemicals were in the air, they both just said, nah. According to the LA Times, NASA flyovers with this special plane are fairly routine during and after environmental disasters. But when they offered, Honeycutt said the additional air quality monitoring beyond what the EPA was doing wouldn't be helpful. And Gray said he was worried their results would overlap with the EPA's results. Which does not make sense scientifically, because so what if they did? Scientists love comparative data. Because of this intentionally missed opportunity, Houstonians now don't know exactly what they were exposed to in August and September of 2017. Or if there were potentially harmful chemicals released that could have been picked up by the NASA plane, but went undetected by the EPA's less sensitive equipment. They also don't know if they could have been protected from exposure if they'd had the more accurate information of what was in the air and where. Houstonians might also be wondering if they can trust their public officials, or if Honeycutt and Gray were trying to hide any bad news about unsafe levels of chemicals in the air, and who exactly these two were protecting instead of the people of Houston. Now that Honeycutt has a prestigious position within the EPA Science Advisory Board, he might think his obstruction of rigorous data collection has paid off. But thanks to the LA Times, we know 
he's guilty of sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Rachel Cletus, Sidelining Science by Shreya Dravasala, Editing and Music by Brian Middleton, Research and Writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.